Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. It's a real privilege to be here and um, an honor to uh, preach to you this morning. There are some key terms that we use to describe our faith that are really saturated with significance. Terms like love, holy, grace, glory. But there's been a term that I've been chewing on for a while now in in my desire to become a, a more effective communicator of the gospel. And it is the significance of the word believe. It's a simple word. We throw it around all the time. We heard today about believers and we sung about it. But what is the significance of this concept to believe? And in the same way, what is the danger of unbelief? Let me share a little story. When I was a seminary student, my first seminary class, 1989, in the fall, Kay and I had just moved down from Michigan, and I was excited, and I walk into my New Testament uh, introduction class. Class was full of students, and the professor comes in with a box of wooden blocks. Doesn't say anything. He puts the blocks on a table, And he simply looks at us and he says, I want you to determine the meaning of this illustration. That's all he said. And so he takes one block, kind of a tall one, and he puts it on the table, looks at it. He takes another block and he sort of balances it on that block. And then, okay, then he takes another and he sort of puts it on that and then another. And he tries to get maybe one or two more, you know, and he's building this structure and it was pretty unstable, you know, and, and, and he just sort of, takes a look at it, and then he knocks it over. And then he takes some more blocks, and he builds another structure. So he sort of puts four blocks sort of on the table there, a little bit more firm. And then he takes some, you know, thinner blocks, and he's making a little square. And that's all he does. Just he stops right there, and he looks at it. And he says, what's the meaning of this? I had no idea. I'm, I'm thinking, brother, if... Your desires to be an architect, don't quit your day job. You know, I didn't know what it meant. We didn't know. And then he said, listen, there are two ways to approach your seminary training. One is to come here with a very flimsy, weak foundation of your faith and just build upon that. And all your courses, just build knowledge upon that weak foundation and then graduate and then leave. The other approach would be to allow me and others to completely blow apart your weak foundation and begin to build something that is firm that you can then build upon for the rest of your life. But the choice is yours. And then he said, if you are here just to gather a bunch of knowledge and then to collect a degree so you can go be a pastor somewhere, if you don't mind, leave my class and go find another introduction class. But if you want for me to take the second approach, then 
come next class and I'll bring my dynamite. I had nothing to lose. I had just committed myself to full-time ministry and I thought, okay, I was naive enough to come back. But here's what I learned. I had learned that I had came to my studies with a very weak foundation. That I was a mixture of both believing and not believing. I had as much unbelief in the truth of God and his gospel as I had belief. And as I allowed these professors and I allowed the Lord through ministry and through life to begin to excavate my soul and begin to build a proper foundation, I realized that that's all basically that we can do. And to be honest, if you're here in our college or in our seminary, all we really can do is just to begin. We can excavate your heart and we can begin to, to pour, you know, some cement and lay a foundation, but it will be up to you to build upon that for the rest of your ministry life. And so here's what I want to suggest. I want to suggest that you have not yet considered your unbelief. I think you have a sense of what you believe, but I'm not sure you've yet to consider what you don't or what you're believing wrongly. And then I want to suggest that, that you are like me and that we are a mixture of both believing rightly and believing wrongly, a mixture of belief and unbelief. And that is something that we ought to confess to God on a regular basis. And in making that confession, then we can say to God, God, I believe, but please help my unbelief. And that you would allow us, your church, your pastors, others, to, to, to equip you so that you can build that type of foundation that will not fail you when you are sent out for whatever ministry God has for you. And the passage of scripture that has helped me tremendously in thinking through this is Mark chapter nine. And if you'll find Mark chapter nine in your copy of God's word today, I'll go ahead and get my dynamite ready and let's see if we can get to work. Mark chapter nine is a passage that really has helped me tremendously in understanding my need for sanctification. And it's also been tremendous in helping me to appreciate how great and how amazing my Savior is. I'm gonna pick up reading in verse 14 and then we'll go uh, all the way down to verse 29. And this is God's word for us this morning. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes were arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one in the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do it. 
And he answered them and he said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth and he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. And Jesus, he took him by the hand and he raised him and he got up. And when he had come into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Father, if you would by your spirit bless your word and now help us both in our belief and in overcoming our unbelief today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This is the, the last, I think, the most dramatic exorcism narrative in Mark's gospel, but I don't think the primary purpose of this passage is to teach us about the power of God, and I, I don't think that the primary purpose of this text is to remind us of the necessity of prayer. Now, that's all important. I really think what this text is about is to reveal to us the greatness of Jesus' faith and the mixture of our belief and unbelief. So that as we look to this text that, that we might consider identifying ourselves with this child's father and with the disciples. And so the point then would be this. We as believers are to confess our unbelief and then by God's help strive to believe like Jesus. Let me say that again. As believers, we are also to confess our unbelief. And then, by God's help, we are to strive to believe like Christ. So, verse 14, it picks up. As Jesus is coming down from the mount, he was there with Peter and James and John. They, they had seen their teacher transfigured. And as they were coming down the mount, there was an argument taking place, a discussion between the rest of Jesus' disciples and some scribes, and a, a crowd had gathered. And so Jesus simply asked, hey, what are you guys arguing about? And then a father, a dad, 
begin to explain. You see this, this discussion centered upon a, a precious child that had been tormented by a demon from childhood. And this, this demon had caused the child to be mute and, and, and it would torture him by causing him to be thrown into convulsions and, and fits. Demons desire to see children suffer. We know that. Jesus desires to see children saved from suffering. And we know that as well. The disciples, now they had tried to rid this child of this evil spirit, but they failed to do so. And why is that? I mean, they had done it before. And they thought, man, I've got the stuff to do it. I've done this before. No problem. Get out. And it didn't work. And so this led to an argument. I don't know what the argument was about. I, I kind of assumed that, uh, you know, the scribes were, were saying, you guys can't exercise this demon. This, this child is experiencing this because his dad has been cursed by God. And then maybe others in the crowd were, were making comments and, and the demons, they, the, the disciples, they were, they were concerned. But what they had realized is, is they had failed in doing what they had did before and they weren't sure why. Later they will learn that they need to seek God for their provision and their strength through prayer. But I, I really think the essence of this narrative begins here in verse 19. Because Jesus, he's, he's, he answers now the crowd and, and, and the questioning by this statement. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? And I think what Jesus is doing is, is he is now revealing the true need of everybody who is there. Because the Lord, as the Lord was looking about this crowd, what he saw was unbelief. He saw it in the scribes, he saw it in the others in the crowd, and he even saw it in his own disciples. Oh, unbelieving generation. And to be honest, this infuriated the master. And so Jesus ordered the boy to be brought to him, and this demon then decides to arrogantly show himself again throwing this poor child into a fit, into some severe convulsions. And as this was taking place, the boy's dad was just looking upon it. And Jesus asked the father, he said, now how long has this been going on? And the father said, it's been going on for a long time, since he was a child. And at times, this, this demon will try to destroy my son, to try to burn him to death or, or drown him to death. And, and again, we have to understand the demons relish the suffering and death of children, but Jesus has come to rescue them, to seek and to save. You see, there's something in the text here in verse 22 that I can really identify with. It wasn't just the child that was suffering, it was his dad as well. The dad's plea was to help us 
Can you help us? But what the dad says in verse 22 leads Jesus again to comment at what is essential in this passage. The dad, he looks to Jesus and he says, if, if you can help, if you can cast this demon out, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And I think, you know, Jesus' response then is appropriate. What do you mean if, Jesus said? God can do anything. You have to believe. God can do anything. The issue here is your belief. And I think the boy's dad got that because if you look at verse 24, immediately the boy's dad cried out and said, no, I do believe, but then he caught himself. He said, but I don't. I do, but I don't. He said, I believe, but help my unbelief. I think that this child's father made an appropriate confession. I really do. I don't see anything wrong with what this child's father is saying. He was just being honest. And, and of course, that's what confessing is, right? Confessing is just being honest with God. God already knows, so you might as well just agree with him. And so he's agreeing with God. I believe, but, but I don't. Would you help my unbelief? It's easy to believe when life is going easy, when there's no tragedy, it's easy to believe, but when it comes and the real metal of our faith is tested, here's what the Spirit of God reveals to us, both what we believe and what we don't. And sometimes when we face those scenarios where we find ourselves totally unable to help, to do, that we really are challenged at the extent of what we believe. And at times, doubt can cripple our faith. You know, as a dad, I, I can relate to this boy's father. One of the things I appreciate, I've been here a long time, but one of the things I appreciate about Southeastern is the way that you know, this school and this ministry walked alongside my family when we had just recently arrived here in the year 2000. And um, I had just begun serving at my church and um, working through that transition and it, it wasn't smooth by any means and I was learning as much from my failures as I, I was from my successes, believe me. And, and I was teaching adjunctively here and we were raising our, our four kids, but our oldest son had been born with a genetic disease. And it caused for him to be on a very strict diet and there was a lot of potential danger in, in what could happen. But we were in a study group and, and we would travel to Baltimore four times a year and go to Johns Hopkins uh, Medical uh, Hospital and, and he would undergo an MRI and he would be tested and then he'd be evaluated and then we'd be sent home. And we did this over and over for 10 years. 40 visits. 
And then one summer, the visit was different. We went up there, we had the MRI done, and we were waiting to hear the good report and then be sent home. But the radiologist said, we need you to go see the doctor. And we were ushered into the office of the main um, medical researcher for the study group that my son was in. And he was looking at the MRI and he says, it's not good. He said, your son's brain is beginning to deteriorate and he's gonna need an immediate bone marrow transplant. And then he said, he didn't even look at us in the eye, he just said, but to be honest, the likelihood for, for his survival is not very good. And now, it took a while for that sort of to sink in and the shock to settle and we were thinking, wow, how could this be now after so many years? And, and I remember a few days later, I had called some, some brothers from the church into my office and I had been, you know, sort of pleading with the Lord and saying, God, we've been diligent. We've, we've done everything the doctors have asked us to do. Why this? Why now? And as, as I was talking to those men that were in my office, I said something that I'm honestly ashamed of, but it was a proper confession. I, I, I said to them, I cannot, I cannot turn my son over to die. I can't do it. I can't say to God, do with him as you will. I can't do it. And I'm struggling with whether I can even remain here as your pastor. What I was trying to say is, I believe, but I don't. I don't. And we prayed. That's what Jesus asked us to do. And sometimes through that prayer and through that suffering, you, you begin to find the strength that you need. And, and by God's help, it was, it was weeks later, as we were getting ready for our son to endure this pretty traumatic treatment, that I was able to you know, just get alone with the Lord and, and say, okay, he is yours. I, mean, I believed enough to know that. He's yours. He's yours whether you want for him to live or die. He's yours and I choose to give you honor and glory for whatever you do. But, but then I said, but please help me to believe. Whatever you're doing, help me to believe. By God's divine providence, he was spared. He lives to serve the Lord today. But, but I came to the understanding that believing rightly is the foundation of our personhood, right? There's a lot of ways we can describe who we are. But, but at the foundation, at the level that we biblically term the heart, at that level, there is belief 
It could be wrong belief, it could be right belief, but it is belief. And, and what belief does is that, that it generates everything else that we do. It generates our thoughts, it generates our feelings, and it results in our behaviors, all right? So you have to imagine that, that at the deepest part of you in your heart is what you believe. And from what you believe is what you think. And from what you think will result in your affections and your actions. You believe rightly, you believe godly, then you think rightly, you think godly. The affections will be godly. The behaviors will be godly. You think wrongly, you believe wrongly, or if there's unbelief, then that will result in your thoughts, which will result in your feelings and your behaviors. And what we know is that we are sort of this mixture of that. Sometimes godly, sometimes not. Sometimes the fruit of the spirit, sometimes the fruit or the lust of the flesh. And we're this mixture. But it's imperative that we, we recognize that what we believe is essential. To believe rightly, to believe deeply, I mean, we know that, that this is the beginning of salvation, right? Paul said, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart the resurrection, you will be saved. But it's this, this construct, believe in your heart, that we just rush by. Because we assume we know what that means, but I don't think we do fully. I think there's more there. To believe in your heart. I think there's something profound there that we need to contemplate. I think there's something that, that our church fathers were telling us when they were instructing us how to make a proper confession. I believe in God. I, I don't know God. I don't, I don't love. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ his only son, our Lord, the Apostles' Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, the Nicene Creed. I think there's some instruction there that, that tells us, emphasize this, what you believe is imperative. And your unbelief is disastrous. And so as as a preacher and as a teacher and as a counselor in really trying to serve God's people well, what I, I've been doing is, is thinking about belief and unbelief. So if I'm preparing a sermon, if I'm preparing a lecture, if I'm counseling somebody, I'm going in and I'm thinking, hey, you're not believing rightly, right? So I love you guys enough to say, I don't think you believe rightly. I think there's a lot of unbelief in you. I think you ought to admit that. And every time I get ready to preach or teach, I'm thinking, hey, you know what? These, these folks don't believe rightly. But God, would you use me to begin the process to help them to believe rightly? Because if they believe rightly, they think rightly, they feel rightly, they act rightly, and God gets the glory, right? And so, so I'm, I'm working through this. And at the same time, I, I'm wondering, is unbelief sort of there at the root of things? Is unbelief sort of there at the root of my sin? I mean, for me to doubt, 
is to believe wrongly about God's faithfulness. For me to worry would be to show unbelief in God's love and care for me. For, for me to get angry would be to believe wrongly about who I am and my rights in comparison to God. For, for me to lust would mean that I'm believing that I must adore idols. So I'm, I'm thinking, how can we focus our attention down to this level of belief so that I can challenge unbelief and then begin to replace it by a powerful, transformative uh, uh, a thing called belief that would identify with Jesus because Jesus always believed perfectly and he always believed obediently and that's why he could cast the demon out. So the story picks up, you know, in Mark 9 where Jesus says, you bring the boy to me. And again, this demon wants to show himself and his authority over this child and throws him into another, you know, seizure. And, and Jesus rebukes that demon and says, get out. And the demon then, with a cry, is gone forever. And the boy, he's lying there and the crowd thinks he's dead. But when Jesus reaches down and he, he just grabs his little hand, and he rises up. And the main difference between Jesus and his disciples is that Jesus believed while the disciples doubted. And the difference between Jesus and the boy's father is that Jesus believed, but the father had a mixture of belief and unbelief. And so then if our proper confession is, I believe, but help my unbelief, then to follow that, our commitment should be, God, help me to believe like Jesus. If the confession is, I believe but I don't, the commitment is, help me to believe right, like Jesus believes. Because Jesus, he believes perfectly, always, always. There was never a point in his life where Jesus had to pray, I believe, help my unbelief. And therefore, Jesus never sinned. I mean, even when he was tempted at the greatest, never. Do you remember when Jesus was led into the wilderness and he was suffering from starvation? Now Satan shows up. And he tempts Jesus not to believe. He tempted him to doubt God's provision, but what happened? Jesus believed, and he said, I don't need that bread. I just need everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then Satan tempts him again, puts him on this high pinnacle of the temple, and he says, hey, manipulate God. Go ahead, manipulate God so he'll care for you at this moment. Jesus believed. And he says, no, we don't put the Lord to the test. And then, and then Satan, he, he took him to a mountain so that he could, you know, see all of the great kingdoms of the earth and all of their glory. And then Satan tempted Jesus to doubt that he had the strength to face the cross. 
And he said, no, you, this, these kingdoms are yours. This world is yours. But let me make it easy for you. I'll give it to you right now. Just bow your head, bow the knee to me and worship me. I can't imagine what was going through the mind of the Lord at that moment. Man, just bow my head and I get what belongs to me. Or face the cross and have to bear sin. He believed. And he said, no, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And even though Jesus was tempted in every way, he did not sin because he believed in the truth of his father, the truth of his father's word, and in the promises that they contain. And so what we have is Jesus as our example and his spirit as our guide. So when you're struggling and you feel like depression is setting in, let's say, and you begin to believe that you have lost the energy and the strength just to carry on, that's when you go to God and you say, you know, I believe, but I don't. Help my unbelief. And and listen, fellas, when you're alone, and you're tempted to go after that lust of sexual immorality and you know at this, all it takes is for you to click, open that, that website, and you will fulfill that lust that wants to be fed. This is when you cry out to God, God, I'm not believing rightly right now. I believe, but please help my unbelief. And for some of you, when, when you're struggling, maybe doubting that you have what it takes to be a pastor or a preacher or a missionary, and I know some of you will face that. When you feel that, when you experience that, would you simply pause and pray and say, God, I'm here for a reason. I believe, but please help my unbelief. And, and I think for us, as teachers, I think what we need to do is make sure that we take every opportunity that we step into our classrooms and commit ourselves. We're not just here to pile on knowledge on top of weak foundations. Come in to your classes with dynamite so that we can blow apart weak foundations because, come on, we know that if all we do is build upon their weak foundation, when they face the stress and the pressure of ministry, they will collapse. We've gotta help build them something firm. Built on that cornerstone of Christ that we sung about earlier, so that when they go out and face those those ministry stresses and those trials, they will know, they will know that they have a firm foundation and that when they say, I believe, but help my unbelief, they can go back to that source. This is what Jesus said. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do, and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father 
Let's go to the Father in prayer. Father, we do believe. But the proper confession is also help in our unbelief. I pray that you would do that now. I pray that you would do that this semester. And I pray that we would all be willing to take apart those weak foundations and build them firm for your sake and for your kingdom's sake, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.